Thank you guys for ministering to our souls in not only song, but in word. I must confess that uh, Pastor Andy every now and then whips out one of these versions of songs we've sang before, and I don't have a clue what it means. He'll, he'll play songs that the words are in a completely different order than I've ever sang them in. And yet at the same time, I'm still encouraged and blessed by that. So uh, it is not easy to put that kind of stuff together, especially if you are like I am and you have no rhythm. I am one of those guys that snapping my fingers and tapping my toes is a stretch. Okay. Uh, my musical abilities include playing the radio <laughs> and singing along poorly. This morning we're going to the 11th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. And once again, as we will go through this rotation of preaching, as we share from Luke, different, different of your elders come and, and pastors and we will be speaking. Uh, my rotation, once again, led me into a passage that, frankly, I don't think I would have ever regularly preached, that I would have come across. I've read it, obviously, several hundred times. And, and there are things in God's Word that as you read through them, as from a preacher's point of view, you go, boy, I just don't think I ever really want to preach that. I don't really think I want to go there, but I have found in my private time that those are always the sweetest times of discovery. When you learn something about yourself or you learn something about the God that you serve because it's buried in a passage that you would have overlooked. I did that with the book of Psalms, the 119th Psalm, for a long time. I refused to read it because it was too long. And I found myself just weeping over the contents of the, of the psalm. It was just too powerful. So if you would, this morning, we're going to the 11th chapter of the book of Luke. We're going to start in chapter 1. And I'm going to read the first four verses before we go any further. And it came about that while he was praying in a certain place, after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John also taught his disciples. And he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. And forgive us our sins. For we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. Now I realize there is another rendering of this in the book of Matthew. And it is the one that we're, we're more familiar with. Because it's the one that everybody sings. I, I don't know how many places you've ever been where somebody thought it was appropriate to sing the Lord's Prayer. It's a beautiful rendition, but frankly, most of the people that sing it shouldn't. Most of the people that commit the Lord's Prayer and they say it at a, a football game or whatever shouldn't. This isn't a prayer for the unbeliever. This isn't for general consumption by the general population. This is a piece of scripture. This is a time with the Lord God Almighty himself that has dedicated the words, the thoughts, the content, the intent are for the believer. Okay? I know that sounds terrible to say because we've probably all had a little card given to us or uh, we were at a campground and, and you could put a penny in this machine. Of course, you put your penny in and then you added 50 cents and you crank this handle and it spit out the Lord's Prayer on the other side of a flattened and oblong penny. So for 50 cents you get a penny that you can't do nothing with. And I, I looked at that and I went, 
I wonder how many people carry that around in their pocket like it's a good luck charm. The Lord's Prayer is not a good luck charm. It's not for a medallion. It's not for the unsaved. It's for the believer. It's for the person who's put their faith in Christ. Here in our text this morning, we find Jesus teaching his disciples not what to pray, but how to pray. He doesn't give them a form or a list. How many of you, like was discussed earlier, would have a hard time praying in public after you hear the vaulted leaders praying publicly? When I first got saved, I thought, there's no way, man. I'm a babbler, okay? I'm, for many years, I couldn't put two sentences together very well to save my life. Uh, I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer. I actually may be a spoon if you think about it real close. And, and I needed someone, someone I trusted and loved to teach me how to pray. And their greatest advice they ever gave me was, tell God what's in your heart. Tell him what you're thinking. Tell him what you're hurting. Tell him those things that he already knows, but he wants to hear them from you. Why? We'll cover that later. But there is something about sharing your heart with God. You don't need a lot of flowery words. You don't need to use those great big theological words like applesauce and mayonnaise. You can use regular language every day to speak to God. That's what, that's what Jesus is saying. You'll notice that as we move through this passage, one of the things you must consider first is, is that the disciples allowed him to finish his time in prayer. Never interrupted. They knew how important it was to him. Prayer time is what brings balance back into the believer's life. If you don't, if you don't think I'm telling you the truth and you don't have a prayer life, start one. You'll find the scales of your life tip back into that balance point again. If you have a great prayer life, I'm not saying you should quit, but I'm saying that if you ever get to the point where you don't, you will find that what I'm saying is true, that all of a sudden things just kind of lean one way. Kind of like when everybody sits on the same side of the boat and the boat kind of leans to one side, that's no fun. Prayer is incredibly important to the life of the believer. Our Savior knew that. He often spent much time in prayer and he did it alone and he did it with the men. It was his communion with God the Father that allowed him to continue on to do the work that God the Father had sent him to do. So the disciples knowing that or sensing that left him to finish his time alone. He would say, Lord, teach us to pray, or they would say, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. It's funny, most of the disciples would have been exposed to prayer. In their lives, they would have seen prayer in the synagogue. They would have seen it on the streets. They would have heard people pray. They would have probably heard their parents pray. They would have undoubtedly had their parents pray over them in some way or shape. I don't know how many of you parents have ever prayed over your children. I know when we were waiting for uh, uh, Mandy, like I said uh, last week, when Mandy was little, our oldest child, we prayed that, that Christ would come before they got to dating age. You know, <laughs> Lord, please come quickly. And and then, and then when our son got to dating age, it was like, Lord, just take him, okay? Just, <laughs> he's yours, just take him. Uh, we're done with him. Um, 
all of these folks who have been exposed to prayer, and they would have been exposed to this really unusual kind of praying that religious leaders did. They would stand on the corners, and they would have these long liturgical prayers, and they would break out what I call the Erwin Lutzer voice. Anybody here know who Erwin Lutzer is? He's the pastor of Moody Church, and when he says things, he says, and God drops that chin down and says, God, and God spoke. And when they would pray, they would loud and slow and deliberate, and they would stand, and the people would remark at how well they reacted and how well they stood and, and presented their prayers before God. And, and all of it was a show. They wanted the applause and the adoration of men. They wanted fallen creatures to admire their, if you will, their religiosity, their, their ability to command the language and speak so fluently, and yet 95% of the time or 100% of the time their prayers were as hollow as anybody could have ever imagined. It's as if somebody had just inflated them enough and gave them the right words and all they were doing was just puking back out what they had been taught. Kind of like when you had to learn some things in college or high school and you had to puke them back out to, for the final exam. Um, many of you know the experience of putting something on a piece of paper or answering a question only to have the professor you just meet their expectation. During the time of this pandemic, we were required to fill out all of these papers. We'd go on a job site and said, have you this, that, other thing? Have you taken your temperature today? Have you been exposed to anyone who's done this, that? 14 different questions. So I answered one of them honestly. And I wrote on the back, how can you really know? Have you been exposed? I wrote, how can you know? I answered all of them, no. I said, how can you really know? I got a call from the plant nurse. She goes, well, that's not the answer we want. I said, but it's the truth. It's a real answer. It's not what we want. I said, so you don't want the truth. You want something that fits your narrative, right? Well, that, we don't really think of it that way. Well, of course not. So my general foreman told me, I said, look, Paul, if you don't answer it the way they want it, I got to ask you to leave. I said, is that a threat or a promise? Okay. So we've all done it. We've all done those things. We've all stood and give answers. We've, we've recounted prayers. These guys are recounting prayers and saying them publicly because that was as expected of them. The Jewish nation expected them to say something like that. I'm reminded later on here in the book of Luke, chapter 18, verse 10 through 14, of a much different situation. Two men went up into the temple, 18 verse 10. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying thus to himself, God, I thank thee that I am not like the other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax gatherer. I fast twice a week. I pray tithes of all I get. But the tax gatherer, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. The words the tax collector spoke had more integrity and honesty in them than all the words that the Pharisees spoke. This was the world that the disciples were used to seeing. This is what they understood prayer in public to be all about. None of them had a personal heart, a connection with God. We can assume from the back in chapter 11, we can rightly assume 
that John did not teach his disciples that way because they say, would you teach us like John also taught his disciples? John taught them a personal way to pray too, a different way to communicate with God than they had been given. In the Old Testament, we're going to see, or you will research, that God is referred to as Father 14 times. Okay, and in those 14 times, it's always in a corporate figurehead, like the, the Father of Israel, the Father of Nations. That, that was kind of his position. They kind of saw him as that, if you will, the, the corporate head of things, not really a, a personal, not really someone you could get to know. And, you know, it's like when we speak of, of great corporations, we, we don't think of as that person at the top being an individual. It's just kind of the great big cloud of things. It's the collection of the, if you will, those that are there. They saw God as strictly someone who judged and ruled, but someone who couldn't really be known in a personal way. God is going to shatter. Jesus is going to shatter their world by starting with a very personal opening. You remember the first time you ever heard someone pray, Father God? I pray, I pray that way all the time. I heard a man pray that way one time, and it shook me to my core. Father God. Wow, God is my Father. That He cares intimately about me. Me, the dirty, wretched, vile sinner that I am, God cares about me. And it shook my world. It made me stop and consider all that I had thought of God in the past and put it in the right perspective, is that God is not aloof. God is not hard to find. God may be unsearchable in his depth, but he is certainly not unknowable in his person. God wants me to know him. So Jesus says, when you pray, he starts with Father. Literally, the word is Abba, means Father, dearest Father, Daddy, I heard a man make fun of grown men who refer to their father as daddy, and it irritated me deeply because I called my dad daddy because it was a term of great affection and great love, and I love that man, and I will see him again. And to make fun of someone who calls their father because they love them daddy is wrong. Our God, our Father in heaven, Jesus literally said, Abba, which means Father, dearest Father. He had a personal relationship. He wants you to have that relationship. He wants you to be able to go to the throne room, to walk up and say, Abba, Father, Daddy, this is my problem. This is where I'm at. This is what I need. This is what I want you to know. This is what I'm thinking. This is what I'm feeling. This is my hurt. This is where my world is. He already knows the mess you're in. He just wants you to communicate with him. He wants you to open your heart to him. And sometimes that's really hard to do. He desires a fellowship with his children. He desires greater intimacy with you than with because you're a child of God. Let me ask you a question. If you were to pray that prayer right now, can you literally call him Abba Father? Can you literally say in your heart the place that only you and he know all about? Can you say Abba Father? Can you say, God, you are my dad? There's only two families in all of creation. One is the devil's family. 
and one is God's family. We're all children of God by the mere fact that we're all created. But that's as far as his fatherhood over humanity goes. He is truly only father to those that have put their faith in Christ and been adopted into the family, who have accepted the, the vicarious atonement, death, and the penalty that Christ paid and have put their faith in him. Then he becomes your Abba Father, and until then, he is the Father and he is your judge. So don't think that because the world has told you that we're all children of God, that somehow that gets you a pass from the judgment on sin. It doesn't. And only those that have put their faith in Christ are safe enough to say, Abba, Father. Just think of it. The same word you're going to use to address God is the same word that Jesus used. That's pretty cool because I don't speak Hebrew. And I don't speak Greek. I can't spit enough to, to do Aramaic. I, I don't have all those saliva glands in my mouth. And I just can't get all that to happen. I just can't do that. He moves on. He says, Hallowed be thy name. To set apart as holy, to consider holy, to treat as holy. We use this word a lot. I've heard people talk about the, the um, burial grounds at Gettysburg and a few other places. And even, um, I'm a big fan of World War II. And over in Europe, there are these places that the uh, Battle Monuments Commission have set aside to bury American soldiers fallen during the Second World War. Uh, George Patton is buried over there. And he is... Um, he is facing east and the rest of the troops are facing west. So they're still looking at their commander, kind of neat. And they refer to that place as hallowed ground, but it's really not. Hallowed ground, hallowed means holy, means set apart holy. God's name, God the Father's name is holy. It's hallowed. It's to be treated that way. It is to be given a unique reference. It is to be deemed absolutely as holy with no thought of perverting or twisting his name. It hurts my heart when I hear people use God's name in vain to take it so flippantly that they just throw it around. And I work with some pretty disgusting people. I'll tell you the truth. I had a man tell me this week that he didn't believe in God. <coughs> we were discussing uh, things in politics and the subject of morality come up and he rejects all morality because he doesn't believe in God. And we'll throw God's name around as if he was talking about uh, used cars. And it's horrifying. It hurts my feelings. It hurts my heart. It hurts my soul because I know he doesn't stand a chance in the final day when God will open the books of life and his name will not be in it. And then he goes on to say, thy name. My wife turned me on to this little book and I want to read something for you. We talk about the name. This is uh, by some unknown author named John MacArthur. Uh, maybe some of you in here have heard of him. I, I don't know. I don't know where he's from. I think he's from that wacky state out west. I think Andy knows him. Um, <coughs> this is not a plug for the book, but it's called Stand Firm. When you talk about the name of God, I want you to hear some of the names that John MacArthur recorded for us in his little book here. Christ singled out the name of God, but the idea is not that we honor it as if it were his title. His, <coughs> pardon me. His name is synonymous with his person, all that he is manifesting itself in all that he does. Think about all the additional names of God that identify particular features of the fullness of his holy character. His name is called Elohim, 
the name that acknowledges him as creator. It's the third word in our Bible. He is El Elyon, God Most High. In Genesis 14, 19, he, we read, Blessed be Abraham, blessed be Abram, the God of the Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. He is called Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. He is Jehovah Nisi, the Lord is my banner. He is Jehovah Rapha, the Lord your healer. Jehovah Shalom, the Lord is peace. Jehovah Ra, the Lord is my shepherd. Jehovah Sidnu, the Lord our righteousness. Jehovah Sabbath, the Lord of hosts. Jehovah Shama, the Lord is there. And the last one I can't pronounce, but it's the one, the Lord who sanctifies you. So when he says, hallowed be thy name, he is encompassing all that God is. All of the names, all of the attributes, all of the parts of God that we understand, and even those things that he hasn't revealed of himself yet, he is encompassing all of that. When he says, hallowed be thy name, he is taking all that God is in name and saying all of it, to every degree, to every bit, to every nth, to every jot and tittle and iota, it is exactly holy. That is what he is saying when hallowed be thy name. He manifests himself in so many ways that we can't put our thumb on all that he is because he is more than we will ever be able to grasp. You and I are finite. Did everybody know that? Y'all have an end? Did you know the day you were born, the day you were also given the end of the line? There's going to come a day when your body will fail. You will go underground. Some of you it may be young, some of us it will be old. I'm, I'm hoping that um, I live exactly one, one moment less than my wife so that I don't have to spend life without her and she don't have to go along without me. She may have a different view of that. I'm not real sure. She may want that changed a little bit. He says, your kingdom come. They were expecting a physical kingdom. Swords out, battles fought. We're going to kill the Romans. We're going, to, we're going to do away with the oppression of the Romans. We're going to destroy the Roman Empire. We're going to set ourselves free. And you can just kind of see Peter out there in front of the crowd with a sword, you know, going to go get them. <coughs> God's kingdom is not that way. Jesus brought the kingdom of God with him. But how does that kingdom look? What, what does it mean to be a part of the kingdom? It, it's more than just throwing up a glib prayer, prayer and just saying, oh, I believe. If you've come, if you believe you've come to Christ and you repeated a prayer or you threw some Hail Mary prayer up there and you walked away from that experience and you're not living any different, I'm going to pretty much tell you that you are not the child of God that you think you are. Because coming to know Christ and coming to be part of the kingdom of God means that your life has changed dramatically. 2 Corinthians 5.17 means that old things have passed away, all things are become new. That's, that's what that means. It means if you're part of the kingdom of God, you're new, you're different. You've been remade. Some of you like cars and trucks. And you, uh, you marvel at these vehicles that have had these full frame-off restorations. We had a guy in West Virginia who would come into the tractor shop, and he brought in his brag book and opened it up, and it was his tractor. And his tractor, he had bought everything he could possibly buy new for his tractor right down to the $75 hood ornament. And he bought original paint, original Ford paint. 
and he wanted the blue and the gray, and he wanted an original key for it. It was a Bragwell. He did a complete frame-off restoration. It was a brand-new tractor, a 60-year-old brand-new tractor. That's what it means when you come to Christ. You become a new creation. You may look the same on the outside, but inside, it's all new workings. God jacks you up and puts some new stuff in you, gives you the opportunity to live your life different. That's what the kingdom of God is all about. The kingdom of God is, is, is here. He's in us. We live in the kingdom. <coughs> but fair enough, living in the kingdom of God has a cost. It's not man-centered. It's not money-centered. It's not self-centered. There's a baggage check counter when you enter, and there's no baggage claim station at the end. What you bring to Christ, would you come to Christ? That baggage that you drag, that sin baggage, that, that all that you've been taught for many is religious baggage. They come and come to Christ, and you find that once you've accepted Christ, you get to that, if you will, in a picture in your mind, a turnstile, that, that all of a sudden your, your bags won't fit through the gate. If you fly a lot, it's like that guy that carries in the bag about yay big and he wants to put it in the overhead compartment. Everybody on the plane knows that thing ain't going to fit. But, you know, the stewardess, she or the, pardon me, flight attendant comes along and does all she can to try to help the man all the time going, you should really check this. When you come to know Christ and you come to be part of the kingdom of God, all that stuff stays behind. All that stuff stays behind. And it's hard. Luke 9.23 says, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself. Take up his cross daily and follow me. Luke 14.26 and 27. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross can and come after me cannot be my disciple. There is a cost involved. Of course, how many of you know that most things that are free aren't worth having? How many of you went out of the way to get something free only to find out? I, I spent a lot of time and money to get something that really ain't worth much. And furthermore, in the book of John, he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Following Christ is expensive. It costs. But the only thing it costs is what you have here on earth. There's no eternal cost, only rewards. He goes on to say, give us this daily, give us our daily bread. God cares for his kids. Any of you in here could, many of you could stand up and testify how God has met your needs long before you ever expected it. We had a couple in, in Bible college, they lived up in these trailers, they called it Upper Ten City, because all the trailers were made out of ten. And they had like five or six kids. They, uh, I don't know why, but they just kept having kids. And, uh, they prayed one night because they were broken out of, out of food that God would just give them peanut butter and somebody showed up with a truck with a box full of bread and peanut butter and jelly out of the blue God cares for his children this isn't a reminder that you need food this isn't a reminder that you need substance for God God knows that but yet it is rather the understanding 
that all that we need and all that we desire for the continuance of our life to his ministry and glory, God will provide. It's a realization of your weakness as a human being. You cannot meet your own needs. You might make a million dollars a year. You might make more money than anybody in the room. But if it wasn't for God's hand in your life, you wouldn't be able to meet your basic necessities. It's just that simple. He was on to say, he said, forgive us our sins. Part of the relationship with God is found in the forgiveness. I'm going to tell you what, a personal, a personal experience, until you learn to forgive, until you can look at someone who has wronged you, until you look at someone who has done you dirty, and you can reach down in your heart and in your soul and can honestly say, I forgive them. You will never know the full joy of being a child of the king. I have learned the hard way over the years that it's hard to forgive. I've been hurt. Many of you have been hurt. Had your feelings stomped on. That's why I don't take them to work anymore. I don't, I've, had, I've had people say things about me that were horrible and untrue. I've had people singled me out for things that were wrong, and I've learned because God has told us to do so, to forgive, to just say, okay, you have offended me. But honestly, they haven't offended you as they have offended God because if you are living a Christ-centered life, if you are living with a kingdom mind and you've asked God to forgive your sins, then you are required because of what you have just prayed to forgive them of where they've sinned against you. And once you begin to experience that forgiveness, that forgiving of others that have sinned against you, you will truly begin to understand just how much you've been forgiven of. I'd make a list of the things that I've done wrong, but I really don't have that much time, that much paper, and I don't have enough ink to do that. All of us have been forgiven massively. When you hold a grudge, you ever hear anybody holding a grudge? Well, I don't really hate him, but I just... You know, this one time he just, he, uh, he sold me a car that just turned out to be a lemon, and I just, I just can't get beyond that. I had an old hillbilly friend. When he said grudge, he meant garage. When you hold a grudge, you're actually letting that person and that action hold you prisoner. Because until you're ready to forgive and forget, and you hold that near and dear to your heart in an unforgiving spirit, that controls you. It will change the way you think. It will change the way you act. It will change the way you behave. And God knows that. That's why he wants us to be forgiving. Lead us not into temptation. This is not an indictment of God accusing him of actually trying to get his children to sin. That's not God's way. But rather yet, it's a reminder of our feeble and weak nature. How many of you here sinned this morning? I did. I'll be straight up honest with you. I got out of bed at 5.30 this morning. I did not want to do that. And then I got home and found out I had to feed the cats. I didn't want to feed the cats either. I, don't, I love cats. I just don't like dealing with them. And I threatened to punt one through the window. I have sinned. I have sinned this morning. I know I have. This is a reminder that God is aware of our feeble nature. He knows. He's not going to lead you to do something wrong. 
He's not going to encourage you to sin. Young people, you don't have the biggest temptations in your life ahead of you, okay? Most of the temptations that are really going to be big ones are going to come when you're in the middle of your life, when you have to make decisions about your children, about your money, about your church, about your wife or husband. Those are the things where challenges become really great because it's not just you you're thinking about. You have to drag everybody else along with you. Hurrying along, he says, suppose one of you shall have a friend and shall go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has just come from a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And from inside he shall answer, don't bother me, the door has already been shut and my children and I are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. But I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because he is of persistence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. Hospitality in the Old Testament in the Jewish world was critical. They expected this of each other. They cared for each other. Yeah, somebody comes to my house in the middle of the night looking for a loaf of bread, there had better be a pretty good reason why you're waking me up to get a loaf of bread from me. And in this day and age, they all slept pretty much in the same room under a big mat. So when you woke dad up, you pretty much woke up all the kids. You wake up all the kids who's not going to be happy. Mama. And when mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. Okay. It wasn't the request that bothered him. It was the time of night, and yet he met those needs. Moving very quickly. And I say to you, Ask, and it shall be given to you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives, and, and he who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, it shall be opened. Thomas Aquinas once asked why so many people, was once asked why so many people seeking God when God's word says no one seeks after God. In a brilliant observation, he responds, we see people seeking after happiness, for meaning in their lives, for healing from their affections, relief from the paralysis of guilt, these people are searching for those things only God can give them. And we can conclude that since they were searching for the gifts of God, they must be searching for God. The problem is that in our unregenerate state, we want the gifts of God without God. We delude ourselves if we think unbelievers seek after God. You ever been in a church had a seeker service? It's a waste of time. The unsaved don't seek God. Fallen man doesn't seek God. God seeks them. So if you're going to build a whole service around that idea, you're pretty much just ministering to yourself. Let's talk about ask briefly. We ask because we think God doesn't understand. We knock. The picture, I hate this picture. I don't know how many of you have seen this picture. Man, I've seen this picture a thousand times. Old Jesus standing outside the door, banging on the door. Anybody seen one of those? Maybe you know somebody's got one of those pictures. It's a great piece of artwork. It's completely fictitious. Banging on the door. Oh, please let Jesus in. If I can come in. No, see, that's not how that works. He said that's not what he's saying here. Because frankly, if we're thinking Jesus is going to knock on the heart of an unbeliever and expect the unbeliever to answer, he's going to be there forever because the spiritually dead can't do anything can't come to the door to open it for you because he's dead. He's spiritually dead. That's a spiritual picture. He can't come unlock the, heart, the door of his heart because, frankly, he's dead. I hate that picture. 
beautifully done, though. In finishing up, verse 10 once again, God gives good gifts to his children. Verse 13, pardon me. I have to skip a little bit. We're running out of time. I want you to understand something about the gifts that God gives. To those who ask for a gift, he, being God, gives the giver, the Holy Spirit. To those who ask and effect, he gives the cause. To those who ask for a product, he gives the source. To those seeking comfort, he gives the comforter. To those seeking power, he gives the source of power. To those seeking help, he gives the helper. To those seeking truth, he gives the spirit of truth. To those seeking love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, he gives the producer of all those things. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit is the source of every good thing in a Christian's life. There is nothing you can do, there is nothing that you can say, there's nowhere that you can get involved that if it doesn't involve the Holy Spirit, it's not going to produce fruit. Let me ask you a question. Can you still pray that prayer? Can you still pray the Lord's Prayer knowing what you've just heard? Are you capable of saying, Our Father, which art in heaven, from Matthew 6, 9? Can you call him Father? Can you call him Abba? Have you hallowed his name today? How about last week? How about tomorrow? Do you desire the kingdom and of all it means of your family and the world? When I come to know Christ, I lost all my friends but two. I was lonely. God has since changed that dramatically. Are you dependent on our God, Father, in a tangible way? Do you know what it means to stand before him and say, Lord, I have a need, and have him say, I know that? Have you forgiven those that have wronged you? I will tell you that out of all of this, that is probably the most powerful part for me, is the ability to forgive. And are you aware of your own weaknesses and God's strength? Have you let God's strength flow through you? Have you, have you yielded yourself to his will? Have you said, boy, I don't know. I don't know if I can do that or not, but you know what, God? I'm going to give that a shot. That's how I wound up in Haiti. I didn't really have any great desire to go to Haiti. But God said, hey, I'm sending people to Haiti. Want to go? Sure. Why not? I wound up in Estonia the same way. The guy said, hey. I said, hey, Lyndon, if you ever need any electric work, let me know. And, and he took me serious. <laughs> Three months later, an email came in and said, hey, send Paul. I'm like, I didn't really want to go to Estonia. I thought this guy was just a whole lot of bluster. I had this grand noise scheme and drew it out on a napkin for me. I'm like, well, that's a pretty great dream you got there, but I don't think it's ever going to happen. I've seen it. It's happening. You never know how strong your God is until you realize how weak you are. And that is the truth of the matter. Let's pray. Father God, for the babbling and the time, I thank you for the opportunity I have revered it, for the lessons you have taught me I cherish, for those that have listened, I am grateful. Today, as we leave this place, may each one here today be able to honestly say, Abba, Father. 
may they be able to cry out to you and know that you are more than just a figurehead, but that you are indeed their father and you care deeply for them. May they fall upon you. May they cry to you. May we all cry to you. May we find ourselves buried at the foot of the cross as we approach you and lay ourselves prostrate on the floor as we beg for your mercy and your grace as we watch our world slowly destroy itself. Lord, we pray today that all that we say and do and all that we strive to accomplish would be glorifying for you. And it's in those, in his name, that we ask those things. In Christ's name, amen. You don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. <laughs>